so good to see you. Glad that you're here with us, whether it's your first time or 50th time or your 5,000th time. Hopefully you have that punch card that you're keeping. If you get to 10,000 visits, good for you. Uh, no, we're very excited that you are. you're here. We're walking through a really kind of heavy topic. Uh, we've been journeying through the writings of Luke, so the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, and we've been kind of tracing different topics, and we had the really easy topic last series talking about money. Like, like, thank God that's over, right? That's what you're saying, right? Now we're on the afterlife. So much easier. (laughs) Some of you are like, yeah, I actually like this topic more than the money one. Uh, But we're navigating through and just kind of seeing what does the scripture say about this specifically in the writings of Luke. And for this series, for the afterlife series, we're really focusing on the teaching of Jesus in the gospel of Luke. And so we're going to, I just got to tell you right up front, this is a heavier topic. And so we're really going to focus on the words of Jesus and see how Jesus handled this issue. And the way Jesus speaks about the afterlife is really sobering. So almost, I feel like I kind of have to give a little bit of a warning that, yeah, this is going to be a heavier message. We're going to stay in line as much as we can, as carefully as we can, to the teaching of Jesus himself, because this is a serious topic. And I don't want you to think that this is Paul's opinion that he's delivering. No, we're going straight from God's word. We're going straight to the teachings of Jesus to tackle this topic. And it's a very important topic, one that we need to take very seriously. And I think we could all probably admit that there are many times in our life where the unimportant things seem to fill our calendars, right? Are you ever surprised at how trivial things fill up all your time? It seems like that's what naturally happens. It naturally comes in. You really have to focus to fit in the important things of life. And sadly, sometimes what it takes is it takes a moment, right? Like a moment of clarity for us to realize I'm giving way too much attention to the unimportant and I'm not giving enough attention to the important. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for me, some of the experiences that have taught me that have been loss and tragedy. I know like losing a loved one, has made me realize, man, am I really nourishing the other relationships that I have? Am I really handling those well and stewarding those well? Now that I've lost someone, I'm starting to examine how am I treating everybody else? Or maybe it's the loss of a job. You lose your job and you're you're disappointed, but then you start to realize and examine, you know what? That career path was just draining me of energy and I wasn't satisfied. I was just emotionally exhausted every time I came home after work. Now, those moments of clarity, they're painful, but they're very informative. This is what Jesus is trying to introduce to his audience in our passage today. Jesus wants to create a moment of clarity for his hearers. And it's going to be painful. And it's going to be informative. Because what Jesus will see, Jesus will see a group of people who are fixated on the unimportant. And they're missing the important. They're kind of trivializing spiritual things and they're missing out on the eternal consequence of their present actions. So Jesus is going to tell a very emotionally charged story. And that story is meant to draw out some feelings from his audience. To give them a moment of clarity. And I think that's Jesus' intention for you today as well. That's my intention as we walk through this story. is to create a moment of clarity. It may be painful, but if you're open to it, I do believe it will also be very informative. 
Here's what Jesus is going to say. Jesus is going to push forward this point. In his story, this is kind of the main idea of his story. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. We call this our big idea. I like to give a big idea every time we're on uh, the stage. Any of our communicators are on stage. We love to give big ideas. So if you're going to write down one thing, write this down. The teaching of Jesus to us this morning is going to be this. When the small door shuts, many will be surprised. Now, what is Jesus talking about there? The small door. Jesus is going to talk about salvation, being right with God, having communion with God forever, our sins being forgiven, that as a door. And Jesus is going to say that door is small. Now, what that means is not that it's not open. It's open to everybody. The door of salvation is open to all. But it's also small. It's small because the only way to salvation is through Jesus. We call this the exclusivity of Jesus. It is for everybody, but salvation is not through just anyone. It's only through Jesus Christ. And that door will shut. It's open to all, but it's not open forever. It will shut. And when it shuts, and here's the sobering part of today, there will be many who are surprised that they're on the outside of that door. And Jesus doesn't want that for his audience, and I don't want that for you. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 13, we're going to start with verse 22, and we're going to see right up front the unimportant. The crowd is going to ask a question, or there's one person who asks the question. Maybe many in the crowd have a similar question. But he's going to ask a question. It sounds like a good question, but really it's an unimportant question. And Jesus is going to diagnose this and say, man, you guys are missing you're missing it. This is trivial. This is not important. There's something much more important for you to figure out. So let's see. Let's set the stage here. The unimportant question introduced to Jesus. Jesus, Luke chapter 13, verse 22. says this. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Now, right there, that may seem like a throwaway comment. Like Luke just wants to say, here's where we are. And Luke does that a ton. Luke is a wonderful historian. He uses a lot of names and places. And, and, and really, we know we can corroborate a lot of his record because he gives us so much information. And that's good that this, to see this as historical information, but there's more than that. Luke has made a definitive point in his gospel writing to say the moment that Jesus fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. And every time after that, that he mentions, hey, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's not just trying to put Jesus' day planner before you. Like, here's where he's going. That's not what it is. What he's showing you is Jesus is on a mission. He has set his eyes to Jerusalem. Why? His mission is to die in Jerusalem and to rise again. His mission is to bring about the salvation of humanity, the forgiveness of sins through his death and resurrection. So right there, just in that one verse, we should read this as this. Luke is saying, hey, Jesus is on mission. That shows us here's what's important. So it kind of sets the stage for this really kind of odd question. Here's the odd question, the unimportant question. Verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord... Will those who are saved be few? How many, Jesus? How many are getting into heaven? A thousand? Two thousand? My family? You know, what, what is it? Now, this was a debated question. We know this in first century Palestine and in, in Judaism. There are rabbis who debated the number is going to be big, the number is going to be small. To Jesus, that's not important. 
That's not an important question. Because what's more important on, than how big is the list is are you on the list? That's the more important question. And look at how Jesus responds to this. He shows them, guys, you're missing it. You're talking about this like spiritual arithmetic. That's not important. You need to worry about the integrity of your faith. And if you're going to be on the list. right? Look at how Jesus responds to this unimportant question. How many Jesus are going to get into heaven? How many? This is what he says in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. That's an interesting response. Like if Jesus saw this as an important question, how many are going to be saved? Then he would just answer it with information. But Jesus doesn't answer the question with information. He answers the question with a command. Do you see that? He says, strive. This is an imperative. This is a command. What does Jesus want? Jesus doesn't want to just inform his people. He wants to move them to action. So his, his goal is not information. He's not like, oh, that's a really good quandary. Good point. Wonderful quagmire. Let's talk about this. Let's theorize about this. No, Jesus doesn't have time for that. Jesus says, you're missing the point. You, my friend, need to strive. And what does that word mean? That word was used to describe like athletic energy and effort in, in, in the games. We get our English word from this Greek word. We get the English word agonize. That's what Jesus is saying. Agonize about this. Immediate effort. Significant amount of energy and urgency. That's what you need to do. You see what Jesus is doing? He's pushing away this, the triviality. That's not important. That's not important. This is important. And then Jesus turns the question on its head. Right? Look at what Jesus says. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many. Right? His question was, how many are going to get saved? Is it going to be a lot or a little? So the question was, how many get into heaven? And what does Jesus answer with it? Many will get into hell. Wow. Jesus, is he hungry? Like, what's going on? Why is Jesus answer with that way? He says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Do you see the serious tone that Jesus is setting right here before his, his audience? The questioner asks about how many get in. And Jesus says, many will not get in. So strive strive. See, even the question betrays a little bit of the mentality of the first century Jews. Now, many in Judaism would debate how many are going to get in, but most, and we see this in Sanhedrin 10.1, we see this, that, that Jews believed predominantly that they would all get in to a wonderful eternity based on their heritage. They could say, you know, I'm in the line of Abraham, so therefore I'm good. My family bloodline is going to get me into heaven. My heritage is my hope. So there's this sense of like, I'm good, I'm Jewish. There were a few exceptions, and we see that, of like some really serious sin disqualifying people. But on a majority, it was predominantly believed that all Jews would be saved, except for a small portion that wouldn't. So now we get the understanding of that question. So is it big, Jesus? Is it little? And Jesus says, here's the surprise. Many will think they're going to get in and not. So Jesus tells them, strive. 
Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I'm in verse 24, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now this, another sobering reality, this is shocking here. That word that Jesus used says some are going to seek and they're not going to find. Does that, does that sit well with you? Like this isn't the warm, friendly, furry, cuddly Jesus. Right? He's saying some of you are going to look, you ain't going to find. You're going to seek, you're not going to find. Jesus is setting up this really stark contrast between the word strive and seek. Now, we'll see later in our passage, we'll see later as Jesus unfolds this story and kind of describes this group that is knocking on the door outside, that they're not genuine seekers. They're not striving. They're not taking this thing seriously. They are treating spiritual things with triviality. They're they're not treating it in a way uh, that has urgency. They think they're just going to kind of like stroll their way into the kingdom of God, that they're going to be fine. So they seek, but it's not genuine. It's, it's, it's anemic. It's not true. We'll see that as we continue to go on. The door is going to shut, Jesus says. They're going to seek and not find. Look at verse 25. Why are they not able? Why are these seekers not able to get in? Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. When the small door shuts, many will be surprised. It's a small door. It's only through Jesus Christ. And that door shuts. That's the kind of the first shock of this passage of the many shocks in this passage, is the door shuts. God's patience isn't infinite. The opportunity of salvation isn't forever. The door is open to all, but it's not always open. There's a moment it shuts, and there are people on the outside, and they're knocking, but he's not letting them in. This is why Jesus tells his audience, you have to strive. You have to strive. you got to put energy in it. There's an urgency to this, and there's an energy that is demanded of you because the opportunity isn't forever. The door will shut. And when is that door shut? Death. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, Just as it's destined for a man to die once, and then comes judgment. Death and judgment, the door is shut. And when it's shut, it's sealed. Even if you knock, he's not letting you in. There's a limited opportunity. There is no second chance after death. This is our chance. Right now. This life. And Jesus is seeing this audience and saying, you guys, this is the most important thing. Why are you asking me about what the number will be? Are you going to be in the number? That's the more important thing. Strive after this because the door will shut. So why? Why are they waiting till now? Like why are they waiting 
till after the door is shut and the opportunity is closed and they knock on the door and he says, I don't know where you come from. Why are they waiting? Like, why do we wait? Why do we wait to address spiritual things? Why do we wait to ask the questions about who Jesus Christ is? Why do we wait to ask questions about who God is? Why do we wait? Why did these people wait? Why is that audience waiting? Why is Jesus trying to get them to strive? Here's why. It's because they wait because they think they're safe. They have a false sense of security. Look at how this becomes really clear as Jesus continues on this story. Verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, okay, isn't that, isn't that kind of crazy? What if, who do they call this person? Lord. And you know who the master of the house is? It's Jesus. Right? Let me read. I'll show you. Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate. Drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Who did they eat with? Who taught in their streets? Jesus. So Jesus is the one shutting the door and saying, I don't know where you come from. Now notice how Jesus said that twice. Two times he repeats that phrase. When they knock at the door, when they make their appeal, when he says no. He says, I don't know where you come from. He says it twice. Why is he saying that? What does that mean? Jesus is not making a statement of ignorance like, huh, I don't know where you're from. Where are you from? It's a, it's a statement of a lack of recognition, meaning where you're from makes no difference. You think back to what they believed. My heritage will give me hope. I'm in my family line, so I'm good. Jesus saying that doesn't matter. Where you come from doesn't matter. Your family, even if it was a family of faith, that's not going to get you in. Your, your, your kind of origin doesn't give you the opportunity to get in. That won't work. This is the sobering reality Jesus is trying to bring his audience to. Your family is not going to get you in. That's true for us too. Your parents, your grandparents, maybe they're people of great faith, and that is awesome. I'm so excited about that. I'm glad that's your story. But you can't claim their faith to get you through that door. You got to have that faith. They had a false sense of security because they leaned on the safety of their family line. They also leaned on something else. Look down again. Let's read this verse again, verse 26. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. They're familiar with Jesus. Look at Jesus' response to them. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. This is wild right here. Because what's happening is they're standing outside, not being able to go through the narrow door, the small door, it's shut to them and they make their appeal and they say, hey, but we know you, Jesus. You, we heard all your teaching. We ate with you. Now, in first century Palestine, that was a big deal. To eat with somebody, to have table fellowship with somebody was a big deal. Like for us in 21st century America, you eat with people all the time, right? You go to Burger King, they're sitting over there, you're sitting over here, you're eating that burger that's killing both of you. It's a really weird experience. Like, hey, let's die together. Ah, you know, like, I don't like Burger King, if you can tell. Sorry. This, this message is not sponsored by Burger King, <laughs> clearly. Uh, 
But, right, when we, we, we're just in proximity to each other. But in first century Palestine, when you ate with somebody, that was a, a relationally significant moment. So when they say that, they're not like, hey, Jesus, we were in the same restaurant. They're talking about like, we had table fellowship, Jesus. You were in my home. We broke bread, bread together. And then Jesus says what? I don't know you. They were familiar with Jesus, but they weren't following Jesus. Which why Jesus says to them, you are workers of evil. They didn't follow the teachings of Jesus. They didn't respond to the message of Jesus. They were familiar with it. They knew it. I bet they could recite it. And Jesus is saying, familiarity is not following. Following is following. And that is true for us as well. We can't lean on the faith of our family to think we're okay. And we cannot lean on our familiarity with Jesus and think we're okay. Following Jesus, that's what gets us through the narrow door. And that's what they haven't done. Jesus calls them workers of evil, which shows they haven't responded to the message. What's the response to the message of Jesus? We, we frame it, and it, really it's one decision, but we kind of break it up into two parts because we see kind of two points of emphasis in the scriptures. And we use different terms, and the Bible uses different terms to describe that. Sometimes the terms are faith and repentance, or their trust and turn, or you kind of have the, the term that encompasses all of them, we follow Jesus. The idea is this, like we are running this way, we are following after ourselves, we're following after our sin, we're running, running away in rebellion to God, and the idea is when we turn, that's repentance. We're turning from our old way, and we're going a new direction. And what direction are we going in? We're going in the direction of Jesus. Why? Because we have faith in him. We trust in him. We believe in him. That his death and resurrection is the only means of forgiveness for our sin. And what Jesus is saying is you guys didn't respond. You just kept walking this way. Yeah, I hear you, Jesus. Yeah, I ate with you, Jesus. But there was no here. Oh, Jesus wants me to do something. Now I need to turn. And because they didn't turn, because they didn't repent, they didn't have faith, they didn't trust, they didn't follow, they find themselves on the outside. The narrow door has shut. And they're surprised. Now the language that Jesus uses as we come to the next couple verses is very sobering. If it's not like sober enough. He's going to describe the surprise of those on the outside. Look, look at what he says. This is Luke chapter 13. We're in verse, we'll read 27. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. Family doesn't work. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You haven't responded to my message. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not common phrases for us. Right? When's the last time you like wrote a birthday card and you're like, hope you don't have gnashing of teeth today. <laughs> don't write that on a birthday card, by the way. Like that would be the most inappropriate time for that. But those aren't like modern phrases for us. It's not in our everyday vernacular. Now, weeping, that makes sense to us. Weeping, there's a sense of disappointment. That's sadness. They're on the outside and they're sad. But gnashing of teeth, that's an odd phrase. That's a phrase that I think is communicating rage. Or anger. That phrase is used in the Old Testament in Psalms 112. 
And it's used to describe the anger of the wicked when they see the prosperity and the vindication of the righteous. The idea is like, I'm so mad that they got something good and I didn't. So there's like grinding their teeth. They're gnashing their teeth because they're enraged at their situation. Ah, I have this negative. They have that positive. And then that's exactly the scene I think Jesus is setting for us. Because those that are on the outside knocking on the door, not being let in, they're not only on the outside, they get a window to what's inside. They get to see who's at the table they want to be at. Look at how Jesus describes it. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When... You're going to gnash your teeth and weep when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Who else is on the guest list? We've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, all the patriarchs of Judaism. They're all on the inside. And this is where Jesus just goes even further. Verse 29. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Behold, some are last will be first and some are first will be last. He's saying, guess who gets in the party? The Gentiles. Those are not Jewish. People from the east and the west and the north and the south. They're going to be sitting with Abraham, the one that you claim. You're on the outside, but they're eating with him. So that gnashing of teeth is there like, I'm not in? Steve got in? Steve stole my stapler and he never returned it. Right? It's probably a little more serious than that, but I'm trying to lighten the mood a little bit, okay? People are sweating in the back. One guy back there just fainted, so we need to do something with him. Okay? But that's the idea. Like, oh, I'm so angry. Because they're surprised. We should be in there. That's their thought. I'll tell you right now. Just... Confession of a pastor. Okay, my greatest fear. Okay, I don't know if it's my greatest. Nutria do really scare me. (laughs) One of my greatest fears as a pastor, definitely, is this moment that Jesus talks about. Um, I, I get scared at this warning that Jesus says, I mean, let's take his words, right? We gotta feel the weight of these words. He says many, many, not a handful, not a half a dozen, a lot, will seek and not be able to enter. Why? Because they had a false sense of security. Family will get me in. Familiarity will get me in. Right? But they're going to be shocked in the end. And I don't want any of the people that I lead to be shocked. Like, I don't want you to get up there and you knock on the door and you say, hey, uh, I went to Sunrise. I sat through all of Paul's teaching <laughs> and his jokes, right? And I, I listened to Pastor Daniel and I, man, I sang when Pastor Aaron told me, you know, to stand up and sing. And I did counseling with Pastor Jace and I listened to Pastor James and we did all that. I, I, I know that. And Jesus is like, wow, those sound like great guys. But I don't know where you come from. Right? It's a sobering reality to know At the precipice of eternity, many will be shocked. They may even say to the one on the other side of the door, but you're Lord. And he will say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of evil. This is why we need to strive. 
because we don't want to be surprised. And I don't want you to be surprised. Now, I'm not trying to strike a, a sense of paranoia in you, but I think you need to see the appropriateness and the, of being soberly minded about this. My encouragement to you is strive. Strive. That's the command of Jesus. Strive. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're like, Paul, that's who I am. This still applies to you. This 100% applies to you. Because I think there are many in that audience, Jesus' first century audience, they thought they were good, just like you think you're good. And Jesus commanded that to strive. So I'm going to command you in the authority of Jesus. <laughs> Not because I have any authority, but in the authority of Jesus, I command you, strive. Strive. Make sure your faith is real and not just an expression of familiarity. Now, how do you know? How do you know if your faith is real? How do you know if your faith is genuine? Let me give you just two small little tests, simple tests. The scriptures talk about this. True faith bears fruit and finishes. It bears fruit and it finishes. Let me show you this. Let's take the first one. Finishes. What do I mean by that? True faith finishes means it maintains its confession from the beginning all the way to the end. Faith is not just this moment encapsulated. There was a time and a season I believed that. doesn't work. Faith starts in a moment, but it's a marathon, baby. It's a whole race. you got to run all the way to the end. Let me show you this. Paul, who's writing to a group of churches in Galatia, they were starting to slip on their confession. What I mean by confession is they were starting to slip on this idea that Jesus Christ's death and resurrection was the only means of forgiveness. They were starting to believe the idea that they could justify themselves. I will make myself right with God. So I don't need the cross, or I'll take the cross and then a little bit of me so I can merit my way into heaven. Look at these very strong words that Paul gives to the church at Galatia. This is Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. He says this, you are severed from Christ. What does that mean? Cut off, separated. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. What does fallen away from grace mean? It means you're not getting in. You're beyond the pale of God's compassion. Why? You haven't maintained that confession. You believe you'll be justified by the works that you do. You'll be justified by the law. You can't merit it. We must maintain this confession. Jesus is my righteousness. That and that alone. I can do nothing to have my sins forgiven except for trust in the one who died for my sins. True faith finishes with that confession all throughout your life. Are there times where you lose the grip on that a little bit? Yeah. But you still hold on. Right? You still hold on. Your grip, your grip gets a little, you know, a little less, but you, you, you come back to it and you say, no, 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 this is it. This is all I have. All I have is Christ. True faith finishes. And true faith bears fruit. Let me th show you this one. This is in 1 John chapter 3. I believe it's verse 9. Look what John says. Here's a test. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God. Here's one of the things I really don't like about kind of the 21st century American way we read the scriptures is we are so fascinated with our autonomy, so fascinated with our independence that we read a lot of the passages of scripture as if we're the only players in the game. 
What I mean by that is like, faith is just me. It's my decision. I came to the right conclusion. I'm a rational person. I weighed the evidence and came to the most logical, you know, all that other junk. Right? But we don't really see, there's a supernatural thing happening when you come to faith. Yes, are you involved? 100%. But so is God. And this is the emphasis the scripture plays so much attention to, is that because it's a work of God, you can't stop it. If it's true faith, what does that mean? You've been born of God. His seed abides in you, and that's what keeps you from a habit of sin. The way the scriptures describe faith when it happens, dynamic terms, resurrection, new birth, new creation. What do those sound like to you? I mean, those sounds like dramatic work that somebody else did for somebody else. Like, did you born yourself? You're like, Paul, that's terrible grammar. Yeah, I know. Did you birth yourself? Ask your mom. She'll tell you. No, you did nothing, right? Freeloader, right? That's what she's going to say. Dead people, when they get resurrected, what did they do? Nothing. They were dead. Like, that's all they offered was that. God does a work when he brings you to faith. He breathes life into you. His seed is in you. And what does that mean? He is transforming you. And if there is no transformation, your faith is fake. Your faith is just familiarity. If there's no moral transformation, the bearing of fruit, the killing of sin, the living for righteousness, you're doing more good, you're doing less bad, then your faith isn't real. Faith is moral transformation. Now, don't, I don't want you to hear this. Don't hear perfection. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what John said. In fact, just two chapters before this, in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, look how John makes this very clear. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. John clearly is not saying it's perfection. It's not perfection. It's transformation. Think of it like this. The moment of your faith, how is your moral transformation been evident? Is it like this? Like an upward moving spiral? You know, you, you, you greet an older lady at church and you take her out to lunch and you buy Pastor Paul a birthday present. That's like really high, right? Oh, but then, ooh, you lied on your taxes. Oh, darn it, you know, but you confess your sin, you repent from that, turn away from it. You know, you make it right. Okay, then, okay, now you're reading your Bible more. Good. You're sort of, like, do you see what I'm saying? It's not, it's not, it's not this. It's your moment of faith. Like, whoop, now you're perfect. Not happening. But the scriptures describe this. There's moral improvement. Oh, you can't keep on sitting. You can't live the old life. Or does your faith look like this? It's like a downward moving spiral. This is true faith. True faith that finishes and bears fruit. This is not true faith. This is familiarity. My encouragement to you Strive, examine your faith. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. The scriptures tell us to examine our faith. Are you holding on to the confession that is only through Christ that you are righteous? Are you holding on to that confession has transformed your life and is producing fruit of moral improvement? You're getting better. You're changing. God is changing you, and you're yielding to that change, and you are changing. If those things aren't true, you need to strive. 
because what you have is not true faith. Not that, not that you're not perfect. We're not asking about perfection. We're asking, is your life marked by confession? Not an absence from sin, but when you sin, you repent, you confess, and you make it right. That's the habit of your life. Now, maybe you're here and you're not yet following Jesus. You would say to yourself, Paul, I'm not in that category you mentioned. Like, I, I'm not a follower of Jesus. Here's my encouragement to you, too. My encouragement is the word of Jesus. Strive. Strive. It's a small door, and it's open to all, but it's not open forever. The chance you have is this life, and I don't know when that's going to end, and you don't know when that's going to end. But when it ends, it's over. It's over. Jesus used a phrase there. He said to those that were knocking at the door. I don't know you. Depart from me. And then it says he cast them out. We got to sit with that phrase for a moment too. I think sometimes we try to, um, I don't know, tame the justice of God. Like we try to, we try to make hell like more PG. You know, we Disneyfy it or whatever. There's a very famous um, theologian, wonderful man, but I think he missed it on this mark. He said, you know, hell is locked from the inside out. Meaning like, well, people don't, they don't want heaven because God's in there, so clearly they want where they're at. Okay, there's a sentiment to that that is true. There's a part of that that's true. Yes, they're not going to want heaven because God's in there and they don't want to worship God. So why would they want to be there with somebody they don't like? True. But it misses a really big picture of the active opposition of God that is very clear in the scriptures. That he will cast them out and he will shut the door and if they are to knock, he will not respond and he will not open the door. And Jesus is the one standing by that door saying, no. Friend, strive now. Ask life's most important questions before your life is over. I was talking with an atheist friend just a couple days ago, and I just encouraged him. I said, hey man, you, you may answer life's questions different than I do, and I respect that. I'll disagree with that, but I'll respect it. But please ask them. Ask them. Don't get to the end and find yourself surprised, because at that time it's too late. Strive now. This is the most important thing that you can devote your energy to. Strive. Now maybe you realize as we've talked that there's a clarity moment for you that you're like, man, I thought I was a follower, but I was more familiar with Jesus. My life hasn't changed. I just keep doing what I've normally done and there's no repentance, no confession in me. I need to truly follow Jesus. Or maybe you're, you would say, you know what, Paul, I, I, before this, before I even got in the room, I was not a follower of Jesus. And I'm asking these questions, and I realize now I, it's time to make a decision. I need to get off the fence here, and I need to make a choice. I need to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, it's time to go over this line. If that's you, either of those, I'm going to pray a prayer here in a moment. And you just need to know, those wor the words I'm saying aren't magical. They're only meaningful if they come from your heart. 
But I want to help you and guide you along in expressing that faith to Jesus. A faith that says, I want to follow you. A faith that says, I want to commit to you. If that's you, you can make that decision today. You can strive to enter into the small door today. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I thank you. Oh, I thank you that this thing is not about my merit. It's not about my spiritual resume. Man, if that's it, I'm ruined. I didn't make it. I don't pass the test. I thank you, Christ, that you died and you rose again. The only merits I can claim are your merits. The only righteousness I can claim is your righteousness. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you change us. That you bring us to the moment of faith where we confess our need. We lean on Christ alone and then you start to change us. We're called righteous right at the beginning and then we are being made righteous, being transformed as we journey. Oh, Holy Spirit, I thank you for the comfort of your work. That you bear fruit in us of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those things start to grow out of us and they assure us that our transformation was real. Father, for those in the room that as we've walked through this passage, Jesus, your really difficult teachings, maybe they've had that sobering moment of clarity, painful but informative, that today's the day they need to follow you. If that's you in this room, you could pray a very simple prayer like this. It's, it's meaningful. If it comes from your heart, there's nothing magical about this. But if this expresses your heart, God will hear this, and he will forgive you of your sins. You could say something like this. You could say, I admit, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've broken your rules. I've, I've broken your laws. I admit I'm guilty. And I believe that Jesus died and he rose again for the forgiveness of my sin. I believe that's the only way. I believe that is the small and narrow door. Today I step through that. Today, Christ, I confess you as the Lord of my life. And I commit my life to follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.